If you're just joining us, we're in the book of Philippians. If you've been with us for most of this year, you'll know that we're in the book of Philippians. So why don't you turn there to chapter 4 with me, and we're going to be reading from verse 1 together. Let's remind um, each other of what we are doing, what Paul is doing in the book of Philippians. And he's turned his attention in this chapter 4 to examples of people. And he's looking at really practical things that are going on inside of people's lives, just like you and I. And he's addressing them and speaking about how we can respond to those things in godly ways. And we'll look at a few of those this morning. We're just going to touch on two. So chapter 4, verse 1, Paul writing to the Philippian church. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat your dear and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. What a beautiful piece of scripture. What an amazing promise. Let's pray together before we get going. Father... This morning sitting here, there's so many of us that fulfill these examples that we look at in chapter 4 in Philippians. There's some of us who feel disconnected and as if there's no unity between us and others, as if there's a fight that's gone on, like we see these two women fighting here. There's some of us, God, who come this morning crippled by anxiety. And it's a mark of our lives that we kind of move from from one anxious state to another anxious state. And our best kind of hope is that we can get this anxiety under some sort of control. Father, there's others of us who've lived under unreasonable people, unreasonable parents, unreasonable bosses. And we feel the weight of those expectations. Lord, and there's some of us who are those exerting those expectations on those around us. And Lord, as we come... To your word again this morning, I want to ask, Lord, not just that you would challenge us, but that you would begin to change us. Show us like men and women looking into a mirror as James speaks about God, that we would see the flaws, see what it is you want to challenge and change in us. And Lord, that we would go away and not forget what we look like. But Lord, that you'd begin by your Holy Spirit to work deeply inside of us, bringing us to maturity We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. So there's two examples that we looked at a couple of weeks ago. The the first one is these two women that are fighting and we looked at and spoke around unity. And the the fascinating thing in this text is when you read between the lines and you see that Paul, this letter he knew was going to be read to churches. It's not a private letter one to one. And yet he mentions them by name. Can you imagine how potentially offensive that was if you were the person who was having a fight with someone else in the congregation and you, and you read aloud from the front, you two must sort your stuff out. It's quite potent and we realize how deeply Paul must have valued 
unity in the body of Christ. And we realize that this idea of privatized religion, which we're all so comfortable with, me and my offense, me and my God, me and my way of doing things, is contrary to what Scripture teaches. That actually, Paul says, the community, I entreat you guys, you help them. You get stuck in with this offense and help them to sort it out. It's a very interesting passage, and we dealt with that two weeks ago. And then we spoke about happiness versus joy. And how, how happiness, the kind of definition, our working definition is very simple. It's, it's up and down like a yo-yo with your circumstances. And I'm not saying that sadness is bad and happiness is bad. Those are good things, but there's something even better. There's joy. And we can find a joy in Christ that doesn't, that doesn't hinge on any circumstance that's going on around us. But rather we place trust in Christ. It transcends whatever it is that your bank balance looks like or the space that your health is currently going through or whatever else it may be that kind of tips your happiness and your sadness up and down. And then this morning, we're going to look at the next two. The first one is a really interesting one. Be reasonable. Being reasonable so that all people can see it. And then the last one where we're really going to spend a little bit of time is this huge issue in our society of anxiety and the longing for peace. I, I'm, I would be surprised if there's one person here this morning who this does not affect, has not touched in a meaningful way. So let's start with being reasonable. Rejoice in the Lord always, Paul says in the very well-known chapter 4, verse 4. And again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Now, let me ask you a quite a simple question. Have you ever met an unreasonable person who's full of joy? Just think about it. Have you ever met anybody who has extremely exacting, demanding expectations of everybody around them who is also full of joy? I haven't. And I, I think there's something in the, the, the kind of pattern that Paul puts this together because I think that they're linked. I think that when Paul's speaking about joy and having joy, that some of the things that come after that are linked to this joy. And I think that being reasonable is actually linked to us being able to live in sustained joy. So think about what characteristic would kind of come to mind when you think about an unrealistic person, an, un an unreasonable person. What is the primary characteristic? For me, without doubt, it's this little word or big word, expectations. Expectations. It's, when, when someone's being unreasonable toward us, we most often think, you are placing expectations on me which I cannot fulfill. You're an unreasonable person. You're an unreasonable spouse. You're an unreasonable parent or whatever person it may be. Boss. And this person or persons is holding everyone to a standard which often feels impossible to achieve. It's impossible to please them. And they always want more. I want better service. Give me better service wherever I go. I, I demand it. Give me better results. Give me better behavior, children. In fact, if, if we know these people or if we are these people, we even begin to criticize the way that people love us. Even the way you love me, I'm going to find fault with how you should have done it better. I've got higher expectations. Do you know, do you know this kind of person? Do you know them? Okay, great, because I'm one of them. 
All right. I, I, and I'm, I think there's more of you in the room. And I'll, I'll share a little bit vulnerably with you this morning as well around just some stuff that God's been speaking to me around this. Because the, the crazy thing is that these, these expectations are not just put on you by others, but they're also expectations that you can have on yourself. They can be personal too. So let me, let me get a little bit vulnerable. And I've shared this many times from this pulpit that I struggle with impatience, right? You've, most of you have been here a few times. You know this. And it's a symptom of, it's, it's, I think God gave me five children to help me with this area of impatience in my life. It's a great training ground. It really is. Marriage is another great training ground for those of you who are privileged enough to be married. And a few, probably about six weeks ago, um, I took a phone call and we were talking and it was as if I was looking at this person or hearing this person speak and I was looking at the expectations that were, that were there and it was as if God just broke right through it and in a moment, it just said to me, that's you. You doing exactly what I was looking and thinking, that's wrong. That, that was you. That's, that's you, Paul. And so I started thinking about maybe this impatience is linked to expectations because if your expectations are not being met, well, what do you, how do you respond? One of the ways, surely, is getting impatient with the people who aren't meeting your expectations. And so, well, how does this play out in my life? Well, if you ask my wife and my kids, there's an unreasonable bar, especially when I'm tired, that I bring into the home. And I want this, there's this expectation of how my kids ought to behave, especially when I'm tired and I just want to watch a football game and they're jumping all over me. I'm like, there's a, there's a reasonable expectation. This is what's going on in my head. There's a reasonable expectation that you just be quiet, even if you're three. You know, da 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 da. No, 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 no. Mom's there. Dada's, leave him, you know. And in my mind, I, I play this thing and I think it's perfectly reasonable. And maybe sometimes even it is. But what I end up doing is that I leave my family and my wife feeling undervalued. I leave them feeling overwhelmed. Any of you sympathize with this when you've had huge expectations placed on you and you never feel like you can, like you can score a goal? You never feel like you can actually win. You feel overwhelmed and you end up feeling unable to match up. And as, as I've been processing this in the last weeks... One of the things that really shocked me is we had Kate and I have a date every week and we sat down and we, and we talk about what's going on in our lives. And I shared with her and I said, I just feel like God has put this, just shown me this thing so clearly. And it was like a blind spot and I hadn't seen it. And Kate just began to cry right in front of me on our date. And suddenly I just thought, oh, she's been seeing this for ages. And it was, it wasn't, it was tears of relief. That God in his goodness and kindness had come to me and brought to my attention the sin in my life that she was having to carry the weight of. Isn't he amazing at being able to do that in our lives? And here's the crazy thing as I've been processing this over the last few weeks. I mean, it's embarrassing to even say this. I don't even hold myself to the standard that I hold others to. I started examining little things in my life where I, where I demand space. And then I look at like when Kate's tired, if I give her space. Or I look at employee things and staff things. And the things I demand of them, I don't even demand of myself sometimes. Is it just me up here? Or is this, is anyone else here say, I thank you? So I wish I was in a Pentecostal church and people were shouting amen, you know? <laughs> 
But I've realized that I have a different set of rules for me, which is exactly what Jesus says, isn't it? When he says, how quick you are to, to look at the, at the log in your, in, or the speck in your brother's eye when you're missing the jolly logs that are coming out of your eyes. And man, guys, this, this expectation thing, it comes from somewhere. I mean, I think many of us who place these expectations on others have felt these expectations. In our own childhoods, in our own growing up, we've, somewhere it's been bred in our lives. But there's, there's, there's just two kind of main responses. When you feel this unreasonableness upon you, one of them is that you just try and perform. You try and match up. You try and strive. And you become like this hamster on the wheel, constantly trying to meet this person's expectations or these people's expectations. Or the other one is that you just rebel. And you realize at some point, you say, I'm never going to reach this person's expectations, I'm not even going to try. And you begin to write them out of your life in some way or another. Now, here's my point. Neither of these things bring joy. Neither of them. Whichever way you respond to expectations, neither of them bring joy. And I started off by asking you from this text in Philippians, can you have joy? And again, I say it, rejoice, rejoice. And again, I say it, rejoice, while you are being an unreasonable person. So what do we do? If you find yourself in that place this morning, I think there was unreasonable people in Philippians, which is why Paul was writing it. What do you do? I think a powerful parallel scripture that really captures what Paul is trying to say about unreasonableness is this well-known text in Galatians. You all know it, Galatians 5, the fruit of the Spirit. And in this, we're going to, I think, I think um, Neil will throw it up behind me in a moment, but in this text, Paul is, Paul is juxtaposing those who live by the flesh, those who live according to sin, and those who just do what they want to do, and he's taking them and he's saying there's, there's that group of people, he calls them the flesh, and then he says, but there's, then there's us who live by the Spirit, and anyone here who claims Christ as a Savior this morning should say, well, that's us, that's us. And he says, and if you live by the Spirit... And he begins to tell you what we ought to look like. And this is what he says. But the fruit of the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such thing there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. In other words, we're not trying to do it the fleshly way. We're trying to do it the spirit way. And the Holy Spirit is enabling us to do that. Now think about reasonableness through this grid of of Galatians. What What does reasonableness look like? Well, it looks like love. So then what does unreasonableness look like? It looks like demand. What is joy look like if joy is is reasonableness if joy is there what is what does unreasonable look like it looks like condemnation and think this through a practical grid think this through the way that you process the life going on around you and the way that you respond to people that you love do you respond in joy and kindness and grace and love and peace and the fruit of the spirit or do they feel demand condemnation instead of peace they feel friction Instead of patience, they feel impatience. There's so much we could say on that text in Galatians, but I just wanted to use it as a a framework to, to highlight what Paul is saying when he says, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say again, rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So here's the here's the little sum of everything I've just said. Being reasonable is the act of restraining 
yourself with the help of the Holy Spirit. Being reasonable is the act of restraining yourself with the help of the Holy Spirit. So we're learning to grow in the fruit of the Spirit. And then there's this little phrase in verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. So this restraint that we're learning to put upon our expectations and our demands and our stuff on everybody around us becomes so obvious and visible that everyone around us says, oh, that's a reasonable person. That's a reasonable person. Are you following me here? I want to give you a couple of of practical thoughts as we close out this point on how do you live in a way that is reasonable, that's visible to all, to all those around you. Here's a few things that that I thought of. I'm sure you could add more to this. I thought of the metaphor of of a shock absorber. And I think in our lives we have to build in like this this shock absorber because these... When, when, it, when it comes, I know for myself, when, when I feel like I want to be unreasonable in a situation, it seems so reasonable. And I need things that are almost like triggers, like a shock absorber that helps me to see, no, no, that's not, that's not a reasonable response. And here's a few that, that have helped me. The first one is this. I've settled that people will irritate and frustrate me. We've got to settle that. Have you ever gone away for a few days on your own and realized how nice it is not to be irritated by anybody? We don't irritate ourselves. Most of the time, it's easy to get along with me when I'm just with me. It's when I put you in the mix that suddenly I become difficult, right? So I have to settle that. That's part of being people. It's part of life. And I'll get a little bit deeper than that in a moment. But I think another one, this is another area I'm growing in, is is that we've got to develop sympathy. We have to ask good questions. Why is this person be, be behaving or responding like this? What has happened in this person's life? What past hurts could be coloring the way that they're responding to whatever it is that's going on right now? That's a great question to ask when you're trying to be reasonable to somebody. Another one is this. We learn to practice the benefit of the doubt. Man alive, we can do with more of this. I want to challenge those of you in marriages. Learn to be the muzzle on your spouse around the benefit of the doubt. When, when, we, when we're mouthing off about somebody and about their, you know, we, take the, we always think it's the worst to take the critical point of what they must have meant or what they must have done it. They must have done it like this to hurt us. Be the person who says, no, hang on, hang on. What else could it be? Why don't we give the benefit of the doubt here? Why don't we assume the worst until proven that the, that the prove the best? What? You know what I mean. Assume the best until the worst has been proved. This is a sobering one. Um, be sober-minded about our own weaknesses. There was a, I remember a, another story I could tell you, a moment where I realized I was a lot, um, people were putting up with me a lot more than what I realized. People have to be reasonable to us. And so we, we find a grace to be reasonable to them. And then maybe the one that trumps all the other ones is to learn to pray for one another. Have you ever tried to remain irritated with someone while you pray for them? Try it. I dare you. It's an amazing thing. As we pray for one another, you feel the expectations that you're holding for this person. You ought to be like this. You ought to love me like this. You ought to, whatever it is, begin to dissipate. And it feels like a, like a, 
um, an oil or, or, or a grease comes into the system and there's not as much, there's not as much friction. That's what prayer does. It, it greases us. Anyway, I know Paul doesn't say all of that in the text, but I felt like it was appropriate for us this morning. And we're going to look, secondly, at from anxiety to peace. From anxiety to peace. You can read, just Google anxiety statistics, and you can read multiple, multiple articles about what's going on around the world right now. Um, one that I pulled was from the independent newspaper in the UK. It's a 2016 report. Listen to this. Rates of depression and anxiety among teenagers have increased by 70% in the past 25 years. The number of children and young people turning up at A&E, emergency, with a psychiatric condition has more than doubled since 2009. This is a 2016 report, so it's doubled in that period. Now there's some other fascinating studies going on around, uh, parallel studies to these, which are showing that the that smartphones and social media are the primary causes of driving this anxiety and depression and all the other stuff that's going on. In the past three years, so from 2013 to through 2016, hospital admissions for teenagers with eating disorders have doubled. In a 2016 survey for parent zones, 93% of teachers reported seeing increased rates of mental illness among children and teenagers. 90% of teachers say these issues are getting more severe. 62% are dealing with people's mental health at least once a month. And 20% say they're doing it on a weekly and even daily basis. We face an anxiety crisis and it wasn't like it hasn't been here before. It's just getting a little bit worse. And we see in the book of Philippians that it's, no, it's not a new phenomena. It's like Solomon says, there's nothing new underneath the sun. There's nothing new. It just ebbs and flows. And we see that the Philippians, Paul's not writing this as kind of a theoretical idea to them, hey, don't be anxious. They're actually facing great anxiety this church, when you, when you dig down, and we've been doing it all through the series, they're facing incredible trials. They're facing imprisonment. Paul himself is writing from prison. They, they're facing attacks from outsiders. The text we looked at last two weeks ago in chapter 4 even shows that there's disunity within, which we know creates huge anxiety for us as we have infighting within a congregation or people disagreeing, especially you conflict-averse people. Those of you who hate conflict, how much fun is it when there's a fight going on in your family? I'm okay with it. I don't mind mind a bit of conflict, but those of you who are versed, it's a terrible, terrible Christmas. The worst one on record. And so Paul, he, he writes to these Philippians knowing that they're facing very real anxieties. And he's actually trying to help them. So you need to read it like that. You can't read it like just a, 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 a theory or a theoretical paper. And this is what he says. He says, the Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your minds in Christ Jesus. And this is how Paul instructs 
the Philippians to deal with the anxiety that they're facing. I want, to, I want to pause and I want to tell you two really, really important things about this text. The first one is that this incredible promise that the peace of God will surpass your understanding. Okay, in other words, you've got all the facts in front of you and the facts say panic. The facts say you're in trouble. The facts say be incredibly anxious right now. And somehow God brings a peace into a situation which surpasses those things and you have peace when you're facing the facts beyond understanding, beyond what's in front of you. I want you to notice though that this promise is only for believers. It's only a promise for believers. The Lord is not at hand for those who do not follow him. The Lord is is not offering to God the hearts and minds in Christ Jesus in this miraculous peace-giving way for those who do not follow him. Now you might say, Paul, that's, that's obvious. But I don't think it is because when I, look at, when I look at Facebook and Instagram or whatever else, it seems like when people need comfort, even if they don't follow God, even if they have no meaningful relationship with Jesus, they kind of feel like it's okay to send these promises across on a, on a pretty you know, Instagram post or like a, a little thing with like daisies and whatever else. And you know, he's going to give you the peace that passes understanding. And I, I think it's, I think it's a... It's a scary thing because we're promising people something that God only is promising to certain people. It's not just a generic promise that God's going to give peace that passes all understanding to anybody everywhere at any time that they need it. Because we lost someone or because we got a cancer diagnosis or because whatever it is that may have been going on in our lives. It's no more a promise to them than salvation without believing in Jesus would be. And to make it like that is, is a problem. And then the second thing is for believers is that while this promise is for believers, it's not an automatic promise. It's not something that you just receive like you do salvation by faith alone. It's not something that we just have on the day that we have salvation. Otherwise, let me ask you on an experience level, if you received it at salvation, why are you anxious? It can't be. So it's not something that every single believer automatically has. And I just want to make those two things clear. And then let me just, let me just put a little disclaimer in there. Of course it's for everybody if they believe. Of course it's for every believer. And for everyone who doesn't yet believe if they believe. But let's not mince words around this thing and muddy the water and make out as if Christianity is just some cultural phenomenon that we can throw around at one another whenever we're in trouble. I love that it starts like this, this little section, even though it's in verse 5b, says the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand. Forever God is faithful, we sang this morning. Forever, what was that, what was that chorus? Forever God is faithful. What's the next one? Forever God is strong. And then this, the, the third one was the one I was really enjoying this morning. Forever He is with us. He's near us. The Lord is at hand. And, and Paul, immediately as he talks about anxiety, and he says, rejoice. And again, I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Then he says, the Lord is at hand. Therefore, do not be anxious about anything is the way that he's saying it. Because the Lord is at hand. And it's so similar to this idea that we've been looking at week after week. You know the little phrase we've looked at, in the Lord. 
There's all through Philippians, there's this phrase, trust in the Lord, hope in the Lord, salvation in the Lord, confidence in the Lord, rejoice in the Lord. And it's an exactly the same idea. It's a matter of where we place our trust. And then this immediately gets linked. It gets linked to anxiety. And it made me think, do you know those moments where you, either you were a child or you are a parent now or you had kids some time ago and you remember that, that call in the middle of the night, mom, dad, someone had a bad dream normally or they've lost their blanket and they can't find it because it's dark. And you go in there and, and you're with this little kid and they, they're crying or they're afraid or something's going on in their little hearts and what do you say? One of the things that Kate and I most often say is mom or dad is here. It's okay. Mom's here. It's okay. Dad's here. And this verse for me is just like that moment. It's like God is near. I know you're anxious, Philippians. I know you're anxious, new gen. I know you're anxious, visitors you've come in today. But God is near. Dad is here. Mom is here. And in that moment, we realize that just our nearness to that little child, just being there, is a comfort and a peace to them. And we make out in that moment, which is a good thing, we're saying, you're safe now. You don't have to worry that that crocodile that was eating the shark is going to eat you. Joshua's got a very vivid imagination. You must hear about his nightmares. They're crazy. You know, we say, it's dad's here. You're safe. You're going to be fine, you know. But God's even, even bigger. He can really say that. He can really say that, like you, you're safe. God, I think we must pause, and, and in our lives, we must meditate much on this thought, on this concept that, that God is at hand, because if God was not at hand, what kind of world would we live in? If God was not extending common grace to those who believe as well as those who don't believe, if he was not close at, hands in our, at hand in our own lives, what state would we be in? This is a great and profound truth and a great mercy that God has come near his people. Remember Revelation 21. I've preached on it here before. It starts right, right back in the very beginning. You go and look in Genesis. Go and look at Exodus. What is God's promise to his people? I will be with you. I will be your God. And then Revelation 21, you can see that same phrase repeated throughout Scripture, the whole of Scripture. Revelation 21, what happens in the wrapping up of everything? When it's all done, when it's all finished, when it's clear, what does he say? And God came down and he dwelt among them. He says, I am your God. You are my people. And he fulfills that promise that was pointed to throughout Scripture. He comes in Revelation 21 and says, now it is done. And then I think there's, there's a couple of really important keys in this text. Practical keys for those of us facing anxiety. I don't want to tell you this morning, just get over it. Pull yourself toward yourself. That doesn't help anybody, does it? It's never helped me when I'm anxious. Paul says, do not be anxious, but in everything, pointing to you could be anxious, but there's another way to do it. He's putting out two alternatives, and then he says, this is his wonderful solution, pray. Pray. I know I just lost a few of you because you thought, well, I've heard that sermon before. What I love in this text is that Paul doesn't just offer up some kind of vague, nebulous prayer. So prayer, right? It's talking with God. 
Any moment, I'm, I'm with you on that. Any moment when we're in our car, we can lift our voice and we can say, Father, I want to, I want to share with you about what's going on. Or Lord, would you speak to me? We can do that as we read his word. We can do that sitting in front of our fireplace. We can do it wherever we are. You can do it right now. Just in your, in your mind, you can just say, Father, I want to hear you. I want to know you. I want to walk with you more. We can pray at any point. But Paul doesn't just leave it in this nebulous kind of um, wide, generic, general prayer. He's trying to help the Philippians deal with anxieties that they're facing. And so he goes more specific. And he says, I want you to pray, but I want you to pray with supplication. And you know what that word means? Supplication. Because if you're going to pray and, and there's going to be a real change in the anxiety levels in your heart, you need to figure out what some of these words mean. Supplication means this, the act of throwing ourselves on the mercy of God, asking for things in recognition that he has what we do not have. In other words, learning to trust. Supplication is asking in such a way that we actually believe God is going to change the situation that we're facing. It's a way of praying that says, God, I know Paul can't fix this. Have you ever reached those points where you've kind of reached the end of make a plan? We're very good as South Africans at making a plan. I I reach this point many times in my businesses, month ends in particular. I have a time of the month. It's the 31st of every month. It's awful when you're in business and you've got to get that money for your salaries. I'd reach the end of myself and I'd I'd try and make a plan and you're moving money from here to there to do that, to pay that. You're trying to honor everybody, trying to get everything. And then eventually at the end you're like, oh, you you haven't even really prayed. You have any, oh, jeepers. And you, and you learn again and again. And then next month, maybe like three days before that hit the wall moment, you're actually on your knees and you're saying, Lord, I need help. I need, I need to figure out here, where, where have I been a poor businessman? I need you to help me shore that up. I, I need to figure that out. I've been poor with admin. I haven't got my invoices out. Lord, help me. And Lord, would you have grace in this moment to, to teach me and, and, and sustain the families that I'm caring for? Do you know what I'm saying? Is this... Weakness that we reach the end of ourselves. And some of that needs to come through in our prayer when we're saying, Lord, I'm weak, but you are enduringly strong. This is some of supplication. You are able. You are powerful. It's the kind of prayer where we realign our trust. Remember when I I hung up all these different things that Philippians spoke about, trust and love and confidence, and we hung it on a piece of string and burned it with a Bunsen burner, and they all fell off. And then I hung them on a wire and said, where are you going to hang these things in your life? Are you going to hang them on Christ, the wire, or are you going to hang them, hang them on temporal circumstances, the string? Where are, you going to, where are you going to hang them? And this kind of prayer does this. It's, it's, it's facing our anxieties. Often, often when I'm praying these kind of prayers, it starts off with, oh Lord, oh Lord, I just have got all these things going on and I'm anxious. And I'm, it starts kind of there. But by the time that you finish praying, it's shifted and you're like, oh God, but you can sustain us. Oh God, but you know what our family need. Oh God, but you know that these anxieties, you already took them before I even thought them. You knew they were going to happen and you've, do you know what I mean? Anyone else have any and it's a realigning of our trust. And, and let me ask a simple question here. If, if this is not the case, if God is not able to recognize needs that we have no power to meet and declare that he can meet them, what's the point of prayer? 
Then we're just talking to a ceiling. And we're going cuckoo for doing it. So Paul narrows down this prayer. So he says, the Lord is at hand. So because he's there, I'm reading into the text, but this is the the idea that, that Paul's writing. The Lord is there. So because he's near, don't be anxious about anything. But even when you are anxious, I want to teach you how to deal with it. As you're anxious, by everything in prayer, with supplication and with thanksgiving. Let's talk about that. So he's, he's, do, you see what I'm, do you see what he's doing? He's narrowing down the way that you pray. It's not just a quick mumbled breakfast prayer over your Kellogg's flakes that you're just on your way out. He's actually saying, I want you to engage. I want you to pray in a certain kind of way. Thanksgiving is deliberately turning our hearts and minds to what God has already done that we can be thankful for. Remember the old count your blessings, name them one by one. Then you will remember what the Lord has done. Do you remember that old song? Some of us need to sing that song, remind ourselves that this thanksgiving is powerful. Do you know, it's, it's like I was saying just now, how hard it is to remain irritated with someone when you're praying for them. Do you know how hard it is not to place our trust in God when we are genuinely praying with thanksgiving and suddenly you realize, but he's done that, but he's done that, but he's done that, but he's done that. And we start to call on the faithfulness of God and we look over our lives and we say, man, God is faithful. And it actually stirs this faith inside of us. Like, like David says in the Psalms where he commands his soul, bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, praise his holy name. And we're learning a language of, of, of not generating faith, but looking to God in a way in prayer that he brings faith into our lives. Because I want to really caution us here that this is not... It's not a quick fix thing. If you struggle with anxiety and depression, you know that, right? It's not a mumbled breakfast prayer. If we're going to approach it like that, can I be as bold as to say we ought to expect no relief? If we, if we treat it in a trite kind of way, we, God in His grace, of course, at times, will pour in and give us relief anyway. Of course, at times, it's not a formula we follow and then suddenly, like, you know, we get to the end. But if we, if we refuse to engage God around His Word, where He's saying, I want you to approach me with thanksgiving and I want you to approach me, looking to me for mercy with supplication, bringing your requests before me, then how can we claim this promise that the peace of God which passes all understanding will guard our hearts and our minds. It's not just an unconditional promise. I wish it were. So this is where I want to come start coming to an end this morning. We will experience no ongoing peace if we do not learn to engage in thankful prayer. I really believe that. I know it can be people can say it's contentious. I'm not, guys, you, you know me. I'm not contending for any kind of salvation by works. But Ephesians 2.10 speaks about the good works that have been stored up for us beforehand. And we must be careful that as we approach 
salvation and that God does everything. I've, I've used this so many times. The only thing that we bring to the to salvation table is the sin which made it necessary. You know our position on this. I'm teaching again and again, but there's a danger here that we kind of begin to apply that same logic to the way that God is working in our lives to sanctify us and to bring us to fulfillment and maturity in Christ. There is a doing component to Christianity which has nothing to do with earning your salvation, but which has a huge amount to do with where we're going to end up in terms of maturity. And so when when I preach like this, I don't want you for a moment to hear, I have to earn or earn or earn my salvation or any of these things. God does it. Even us being able to change in sanctification, God does it. We know that from Philippians. He brings to completion that which he starts. Philippians 1.9. But I want to say again, I don't believe that we will experience an ongoing peace if we do not learn to engage in thankful prayer. But then here's the hope. Here's the encouragement. But if we do, as we do, as God grows us, as the Holy Spirit gives us grace to learn to pray these prayers, what a promise. What a promise is ours that God, the God of the universe, will give us a peace which passes all understanding and it will guard our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. In other words, God himself, G-O-D, God, is going to guard, G-U-A-R-D, your heart and your mind. Do you know why your heart and your mind need guarding? I shouldn't even have to ask that question. We all know because our minds get so anxious and they run off after all these other things and then our emotions give feet to that. And then everything goes, you know, like it all goes spirals down and we're running off with our emotions and the worst possible scenarios are already playing out in our minds. Our minds imagine all that could possibly go wrong and our hearts, emotions run away with us. But when we learn to pray like this, when we learn to trust like this, it's not the prayer formula. The prayer points us to learning to trust in Christ. It's the trust in a a God who's bigger than our circumstances which frees us. When we do that, we'll find ourselves in situations full of peace where peace has no business being. We'll find ourselves facing tragedy Facing diagnoses, facing the death of a loved one, facing marriage crisis, facing exams, facing all these different things which come and crowd in on our lives. And we will have peace, overwhelming peace, and we know that peace has no business being there. That's because it's a miraculous peace. It's a peace that passes all understanding it it, it it defies the cards on the table it looks at the cards on the table and they say panic run get alone be anxious be very concerned and it says peace that passes all that passes all that understanding let me close off i want to read this well-known text and as i do that i want to just mention one last thing i think there's also a danger And I'm seeing increasingly that anxiety is becoming normalized in our society. Um, We kind of, even as believers, we expect it. I don't even think many of us pursue a, a life where we're saying, God, I don't want to live with any anxiety. I want to trust you. I want to trust you in every situation. And I think we, we know that in, in theology, 
But in practice, everyone's telling us, no, this is normal. Teenage kids are going to go through this. And yes, they are. I, I get that. But that shouldn't be where we stop. We shouldn't just be saying, well, if everyone's going through it, then I'm not even going to pursue it. So we look at, we look at phrases. We're going to look at one now in Matthew chapter 6. And it's quite, a, it's quite a fascinating study to go through a book, one, any of the Gospels. Go through one of the Gospels and look for all the things that Jesus says, do not do. Do not, do not, do not. And so take a phrase, for example, like we all know this one really well, do not commit adultery. That's not normalized. That's not okay. But it's exactly the same phrase when he says, do not be anxious. In Matthew 6 that we're going to read now, it's a command that he's giving us as believers, do not be anxious. But we've got so normalized around it that we just think, oh well, Anxious, not anxious. I want, to, I want to encourage you. I'm not trying to discourage you. I want to encourage you. If you're facing anxiety and you feel like this is just my lot in life, this is just what I've got to deal with because, well, everyone else is and it's all normal. No, Scripture comes and says, no. You can live in a place where peace passes all understanding. You can live there where you trust God so much that we don't have to deal with anxiety in our lives. Maybe just a fleeting moment where it's like, <gasps> and then we say, oh, yes, but, but God. Oh yes, but God. Let's read this together, Matthew chapter 6, and then we close. Therefore, Jesus speaking, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body and what you will put on. Do you notice how fundamental those things are? It's not your Mercedes Benz. It's not your specialized bike, as nice as that is. He's talking about the basics of life. And he's getting right to, there's nothing that you can exclude here. He's saying, I'm going to the baseline. And I want you not to be anxious about those baseline issues. What you're going to, your, your life, what you're going to eat, what you're going to drink, what you're going to put on so you don't run around naked. Is not life more than food? And the body more than clothing. And then here is what Jesus appeals to as his proof that you should not be anxious. Here's what he appeals to. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns. And yet your heavenly father feeds them. That's what Jesus underscores this with. It's the trust in the father. We're not not anxious because we followed some prayer formula. We're not anxious because we trust in our father and prayer reminds us. It throws us on him again. And then he says this beautiful little phrase, are you not of more value than them? And it's a rhetoric question. The answer is, yes, you are. You are more valuable than birds. And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the fields, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. And look at how he points to God again. But if God so clothes the field, the grass of the field, which today is alive... And tomorrow is thrown in the oven. Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? We hear that rebuke this morning, Lord. Therefore, therefore, because God is like this, because God is a God who can look after the tiniest sparrow and and. Bring beauty in the field with the lilies and the plants which are here and then gone. Because of those things, then Jesus says, therefore you, 
You do not be anxious saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things and your heavenly Father knows that you need them. And then here's a life verse. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Isn't that true? Sometimes when you put your head on your pillow at night, you say, God, sufficient for the day is its own troubles. That was a hard day, Father. Help me process that. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you for your word. Lord, I'm aware I've said some things which could be misconstrued this morning. By your Holy Spirit, I want to ask that you would come and bring what I've shared, what your word means, and what people have heard it as into alignment. Lord, come and encourage us this morning that we leave seeking the the, the, the truth of what it is that you've put on offer before us, God. Lord, we don't want to, like C.S. Lewis says, be beggars playing with mud pies in the slum completely unaware of the beach holiday or the the holiday by the beach that you've offered us lord we want all that you offer us lord and this issue of anxiety in particular is such a big one for us would you come and help us lord to see what it is that you've promised us to see how we attain it to help us grow in maturity lord Father, I want to ask you around reasonableness this morning and the expectations that have been placed over our lives by others. God, there are healthy expectations, there are good expectations, but then there are expectations which come to cripple, which come to push us down and hinder us. And by your Holy Spirit this morning, I want to ask your freedom. Right now, Lord, we ask your freedom in people's lives. People who are running on hamster wheels trying to prove something to a father who's already dead. Still trying to prove to him that they're not whatever it was that he spoke over their lives. Lord, come and bring freedom. In the name of Jesus, bring freedom. Lord, those of us who are struggling with laying high expectations on everybody around us, demanding, holding up a bar, that's so high that not even we could jump over it and yet we blind to that and we are debilitating those around us. Father, would you forgive us? Forgive us, Lord. Where that's the case in marriages, in friendships, in parents, in children. Forgive us, Lord. I ask that by your Holy Spirit, Father, you come and massage these things into our hearts. In the wonderful and precious name of Jesus, amen and amen.